This story begins with me telling the writer Danny Wallace that I have noticed something curious about the opening credits to the TV show The West Wing. Basically, I discovered some years ago that if you sing the names of the actors as they come up in the opening credits to The West Wing... As they come up, right? Yeah, it matches the theme. So it goes... Um, and Alice and Johnny, Joshua Molina, Richard Schiff, uh, da, 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 and Bradley Whitford, and Martin Sheen, created by Aaron Sorkin. Nice. Yeah, it totally works. Uh, I've always thought it was actually deliberate on the part of the composer. Anyway, I told my... Um, That's how they write. Yeah. They give me the cast list and I'll do the rest. Yeah. I told my next door neighbour this, John. And he said, I don't believe you. So I said, no, come on, we'll, we'll do it. So uh, he came round and I put it on and I sang it. And he said, my God, you're right. This is extraordinary. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, John phoned me up to say, you're never going to believe this. I'm going to meet Bradley Whitford. And I said, well, you've got to tell him the story. You've got to do it. And he said, yes, we all got like, really excited. I was thinking Bradley Whitford's going to be blown away by this. So anyway, the night came. And the next day he phoned me up and I said, how did it go? He said, not well. <laughs> I was like really nervous, like, you know, getting ready to the moment I could tell him. And, and he said, I told him, I said, oh, yeah, it's a song. And, you know, you can sing the names of all the actors. Goes, and Alice and Johnny, Richard Chef and Bradley Whitford. <laughs> and apparently Bradley Whitford was just looking at him with this slightly baffled, <laughs> glazed look. And at the end of the dinner, Bradley Whitford said to my next door neighbour, I'd sure like to hear that song sometime that you were talking about. <laughs> so he didn't even know. Didn't yeah. even know. Yeah. <laughs> I am surprised by Bradley Whitford's response. To me, it's an extraordinary story. It's funny and fascinating. But to Bradley Whitford, it was confusing and unengaging. It makes me realise how so many things, ideas and jokes and music and culture, lie on that fine line between good and bad. This is Saturday morning in uh, Fremont, New Hampshire. The sounds of Fremont are non-musical sounds. It's the sounds of cars going past. Today, the sounds of rain falling on leaves. When Dot and Betty Wiggin were children, growing up here in Fremont in the late 1960s, there was no music in their lives. Their father, Austin, wouldn't allow it. We had horses, dogs, cats. Chickens. Chickens at one point. Was your father sort of strict in general, like about everything? Pretty much. Yes, he was. We couldn't really go too far. We had chores to do. We weren't allowed to go out to dances or anything. We just stayed home. <laughs> he didn't want us to have so much of a social life. Afraid so, we'd get too involved on the outside. Which we probably would have. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, whatever we did, we did as a family. Yeah, that's what it was. We a did everything as a family. So had you ever been to a concert or...? Not growing up. Our father wouldn't allow it. No. Were your parents musical? No. My father played... Played the juice harp. Right. Often, or just sometimes, or... When the mood struck him, I guess? Yeah, he didn't do it a lot. So this is the uh, Fremont Historical Museum. So one of Fremont's claims to fame is that it was the first place where a B-52 bomber 
crashed, but no one was hurt. That's right. This is Matthew Thomas. He used to be the Wiggins' neighbour. Now he's the town historian. So B-52 bombers had crashed elsewhere, but people had died. That's right. Whereas, whereas in Fremont, no one had died. That's right. That's what made uh, Fremont pretty unique with that episode. And you've had UFO sightings? Uh, yes, we've had some UFO sightings here in Fremont, uh, primarily around September of 1965, down by the power lines on Route 107. Yeah, it was quite an exciting time for Fremont at the time. The total lack of music in the Wigan girls' lives made their father's unexpected announcement one day quite startling. He said his mother had read his palm and she'd divined from it that his daughters were going to be in the biggest girl group in America. And so he was taking them out of school and he was going to call them the Shags. We'd practice during the day while he worked and then when he came home from work we'd practice sometimes before supper and sometimes he's very strict. We practiced until it was the way he liked it. If he didn't like it, we'd do one song over and over and over. Tell and then wish. usually on Saturdays. Yeah. Too. So was he kind of in charge of, of everything? Yes. Yes, he was. Yeah. Nobody was at the house when we practiced. He set the equipment up in the basement. Did he ever ask you if you wanted to do this? Mm, no, honestly, I don't, don't think remember so. him asking us. I think you were going to do this. That type of attitude, you know. Just something we had to do. <laughs> I guess in his own way, he was a good man. It's just, he was so strict that, you know what I mean? But mm -hmm. our mom was the sweetest woman around. She also, whatever my father said, you know, she did. I mean, his way or the highway. Matthew, the town historian and former neighbour of the Wiggin family, says he never really liked or trusted Austin. He wasn't a happy soul, that's all I can say, so. In what way? I never, ever remember seeing him smile, you know, in my lifetime, uh, he seemed to be a very serious, kind of not overly friendly guy. Um, Did he seem I, like a sort of angry man? I would say there was a part of him that was probably angry. You know, I'm sure he took his responsibilities very literally, and he, there was no joking around with him. He was all business, hmm. not very cheerful at all. <laughs> what would you do to sort of get away? Well, some days on a real hot day, our father would go to work, and we'd get in the car and go to the lake. Go swimming. <laughs> Get home before he got home. <laughs> <laughs> Have the music all set up as if we'd been practicing all day. Did you sometimes think that your father was a bit kind of nuts? I guess that would. Yeah, that would be, that would fit it. Kind of obsessive. Yeah, very obsessive. Very obsessive with music. What do you remember when you remember those days of rehearsals? What sort of pops into your mind as a memory? That I didn't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we I don't want yet? to do this. Can't we stop? <laughs> We've done it too long, and you know, we had to do exercises and everything. I forgot about those. Yeah. <laughs> what were they? Jumping jacks. Yeah. Um, um, Push-ups. <laughs> was this all part of the band thing? He yeah. was. Yeah. Probably thinking ahead that he wanted to make sure we stayed in shape to, if it ever happened, or we got to perform or got to be on the Ed Sullivan show. That was his dream. I think he wanted less on the Ed Sullivan so show. And then one day, after five years of constant rehearsing, Austin announced to his daughters that they were ready to record an album. We didn't think we were ready. We didn't think we were ready at all. We didn't want I didn't want to do it. So where did you go to record? Uh, Revere Mass, uh, Fleetwood Recordings at the time. Hi, John. Welcome to the old Fleetwood Studios here in Revere. I recorded the Shags here in 1975. 
And then it was years later that I actually learned that my friend Bobby Hearn, that I did some studio projects with, he recorded the first one. Hmm. I remember it like it was yesterday because it was so different. You know, you, there's no way you could forget it. The studio owner, Ray Samora, came up to me, me being the new guy here, and he says, Hey, Jeff, how would you like to record an all-female rock band? Yeah, you know. Sure, I'll do it. He says, uh, are they good looking? He says, oh, they're gorgeous. They're gorgeous. Now, I'm expecting, you know, spandex and, you know, rock stars. And there's a knock at the door, and I see four girls, a brother, and Austin and Annie, the mother. Oh, maybe these are the helpers, you know. And I, I let them in. They didn't say a word. Did they look kind of miserable? They did. They, they didn't look like they wanted to be here at all. I remember saying, let's just get this over, to myself. I did not say it to my father. Let's get this over and get out of here. Well, that's where we put Helen. I remember Dorothy was right about here. Betty over here. And they just kind of set up. Austin was like, he wasn't like a drill sergeant. He was more like a girls softball coach. You know, Come on, girls, let's go, let's go. They were like a girl group of Casper houses out in the countryside, homeschooled, separated from society, pretty much inventing music from scratch. If you have heard practically no music and then you're told to create music, what will it sound like? thinking, well, geez, if they, they're going to be recording, it must be pretty good. And of course, you know, you always say, you think they can do that better? But Austin was going, no, no, that's great. That's great. Let's just go on to the next one. Bob told me, he said, Jeff, we, we couldn't help it. We were literally rolling on the floor. We hid down beneath the glass and we just laughed. You can never in this world. How long were you in there for? Oh, my, that was an all-day affair. It was late, I know it was dark out when we came home. They printed a thousand copies of the album, Philosophy of the World. Austin decided to organize them a Friday night residency at the Fremont Town Hall. How would the world receive the music of the shags? Find out later in the programme. These days, Simon Hollis is a radio producer, but at one time he lived in New York and he was trying to make it in the Calvin Klein organisation. My roommate worked for Calvin Klein and used to get me freelance work. And I did get a job title. It was Assistant Freelance Visual In-Store Director for Calvin Klein Home Products. Right. So Which that... involved finessing duvets and plumping pillows. For... Oh, okay. Window displays. Window. <laughs> exactly. And the huge event on the Calvin calendar was the opening of the flagship store on Madison Avenue. It was going to be a grand opening, a cocktail bar with everyone from New York. So all these women with ridiculous titles from New York Society, like Diane von Fristenberg and Barbara Lee Diamondstein Spielvogel. 
No, she was there. Yeah, no, that saying, is a real... You're just saying noises. No, no, she really does exist and she really was there. And it would yeah. end with Calvin arriving on a helicopter yeah. on the roof, declaring his store open. And if I know anything about New York society, they're quite exacting. Yeah. The whole thing, it was called Fashion for a Cause. It was raising money for New York Ballet, so it wasn't a great cause. <laughs> They'd ordered all these red candles, which had to be put out on display all around the store because the idea was you'd attend the party and buy one of these candles and the money would go to charity and the candles were about 40 or $50 each. And it was our job as assistant freelance visual install director of display to make sure that all the candles were put up. My last orders ringing my ear that day was from my visual director who said, I want every single candle out there. I want them all out there. Lit? No, no, not lit, actually. They were just... Because that would have been a massive fire hazard. Plus a huge waste of money. A huge waste of money. But they massively overordered them. Massively. So everyone was just, like, stuffing candles behind suits or under the table or behind the counter. And it was my job to put the candles out on display in the home section, which was in the basement. And I didn't really know what to do with them all. And Calvin's helicopter was literally circling around the top of the the shop and, and, we, and he was waiting until you'd like laid out the candles well, the, before the you could land well the, the store wasn't ready in the Calvin sense it just wasn't ready and the word that was most often used was either perfect or it's not yet perfect and it had to be exactly right yeah. so all the candles had to be done so I just made this decision I just thought well you know the focus piece of Calvin Klein home was this massive cedar wood bed beautiful minimalist 12 foot by 12 foot bed and it was not just the opening of the shop it was the launching of his home line so everyone would come down and admire the craftsmanship of this bed something just occurred to me I thought put all the candles on this bed all these red candles just put them all on the bed to the extent that you couldn't see the bed I don't know if you could if you, but I thought the important thing was I was told to put all the product out so I thought put the product out I mean, you must have thought to yourself, this will look amazing. I remember being visually very excited that the candles fitted in with the dimensions of the bed so perfectly. But were you thinking to yourself, God, I bet no one's ever completely covered a bed in candles? I thought this was the first time I'd had to make an important decision and I thought it was visually pleasing. How many candles uh, by the end several, of... Several hundred, probably. On one bed? yeah. Calvin circling in his helicopter. Is he getting like kind of messages over the tannoy going, the candles are nearly all out? You can just hear the blades of the helicopter on the roof. You can hear the doors opening. You can hear the flash of light bulbs outside the store. And then my boss, the real visual in-store director of product, just came down just to check everything was ready and he just stopped. And all the other workers were around me and we all formed a circle that I thought I'd done really well. And he just stopped. And he looked at this, and there was no movement at all. All I heard was the spinning of the blades outside. And he just looked at it, and he lowered his voice really low, and he goes, who sleeps here? And I thought, what are you talking about? And he goes, who? Who sleeps here? Does Satan sleep in this bed? And he goes, who did? Who, who authorized this? And they all looked at me and said, oh, right. Um, what were you doing? What are you thinking? 
And it's like, the whole thing, you did this entire spiel, it was really humiliating. Like, red candles is totally wrong for this bed. This bed is not Calvin, this bed is Satan. Is did that... you try and justify the, the overuse of candles? Well, you say overuse, I say overorder. I mean, there were so many of them, I didn't know where to put them. And I just simply panicked, said, right, everybody, Calvin's going to be here any second we need to move. Like, I cared at all. I remember trying to put one inside a fruit bowl and make it look like an apple. There were others that were shoved under various kind of cashmere sweaters. And I think all night people were going, oh, what a lovely looking suit. And suddenly a candle would fall out of one of the sleeves because no one else knew how to put it. Um, so Calvin never saw the bed. I don't think Calvin ever saw the bed as, as Lucifer would have wanted it. And so anyway, the next day, I was basically sacked when I was summoned by the person, Mr. Satan's bed himself, who said, um, <laughs> and I'll never forget it, he said, Simon, we're really going to have to lose you. He said, we like your accent, God knows, um, but you're not what I would call a visual person. And it was the only time I'd heard the word visual have three syllables in it. <laughs> Simon Hollis. Back in Fremont in the late 1960s, and Austin Wiggin was preparing to launch his daughter's girl group, the Shags, into the world. The sisters had hardly ever heard any music, having been kept in the basement by their father and told to rehearse constantly for five years, and so they'd pretty much invented music from scratch. the Fremont Town Hall. This is where we used to have the dances. And... Remember carrying all the instruments up all those stairs, Betty? Yeah. That was a tough part, carrying the instruments up and down the stairs. My pal's name is Footfoot. Foot. He always likes to roam. My pal's name is Footfoot. Foot. I never find him home. I go to his house, knock at his door. People come out and say, These are the rules written for the shag dances in Fremont by Austin Wiggin Jr. 1. Once you have paid admission to get into the dance, you will not leave the hall until it is time to go home or you will have to pay admission again. 2. There will be no running up and down the stairs constantly. The only reasons for coming downstairs is to go to the basement, have a cigarette, and for intermission. 3. When doing the poker, no one is to push or trip each other, or the poker will be stopped. 4. No one is to go into the kitchen unless Mrs. Wiggin is in there. 5. No one will go down in the cellar at all. If anyone is caught down there, it will be cause for trouble. 6. Just in case anyone has any questions about these rules or don't agree with them, talk to Mr. Wiggin. Then I'm sure you will agree. You have kids running around, it's a big hall. And they could get into trouble and go hide in little corners and you never know what was going on sometimes, so you had to be careful. Well, you never know what's going on in corners. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> now that you're here, won't you come home? Foot, foot, promise me this, that you will never again know. Me, it was always, just can't wait till we're done because I didn't think we were any good. 
the worst experience that I remember is having solar cans shot at us on the stage. So. so if you were worried that you weren't very good, then that must have confirmed it. It must have. Kid used to pick on us and this and that, you know, say how bad we were, so... Yep, make fun of we, us. Yeah. Was it upsetting? Embarrassing. I think to me it was just embarrassing. What were they saying? We didn't know what we were doing. Music was trash. Hurts their ears. Things like that. What should I do? What should I do? Tell me, tell me, what should I It's like a strange kind of mathematical equation that they were doing it for him. Right. They weren't very good. They massively over-rehearsed. They had no musical influences and all this kind of weird mishmash of... Is what made a, a wonderful brew of... of oddness and... Oddness and uniqueness. Uh, yeah, and, right. and hauntingness. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But it all came crashing down after he died. In 1975, Austin dropped dead of a heart attack at the age of 47. Immediately, the girls disbanded the shags, determined never to play again. I just walked out and said, I'm done. We knew he weren't there to say, okay, you're going to do it. And we figured when we ended it and we went on with our own lives, that that was the end of it. That was one life and now another. About 20 years after Austin died, something really unexpected happened with the shags. And it all happened because of a man called Terry Adams. And I am outside his house right now in Salem, Massachusetts. Terry is the singer in the band NRBQ. Our saxophonist got in the car one day with a cassette and um, had a long ride, so had plenty of time to listen and heard it. And Which one was it? Philosophy of the World. You can never please anybody. I just immediately said, uh, let's put this record out. What did you think of it when you heard it? Different than anything that I'd ever heard. The whole band thought so. and uh, needed to be heard. I knew people would like it. What made you think people would like it? Because, of course, when they were going, they weren't well-liked. What did you see in it? I saw beauty. Beauty and originality. Uh, all the things that makes music special. They had it outside of the normal thinking process for songwriting at the time. We got determined to do it. I really wanted to put that record out. So one day, you know, my drummer, Tom Ardolino, and my brother, Don Adams, got in the car and took a six-hour drive up to New Hampshire just blindly because since they'd been married, uh, their names were known, they couldn't find them. I think we went to the library or something and started asking around until we could find them. And told him we were in town and we wanted to talk to him. So we met at something like Pizza Hut. And uh, Dot was married to a guy named Fred. And so we proposed that we release Philosophy of the World and Fred said, well, how much is that gonna cost us? You know. So when we explained, no, we're gonna pay you, it was like a whole other concept to them. I didn't want anything to do with it right. when Terry first got in touch with you. Mm -hmm. uh, you do what you want, but right? I don't want nothing to do with it. Did you know where the master tapes were? Yeah, we had them at the time, and then I turned them all over to Terry Adams so he could do the recordings. And, and were you wondering why? Oh, yeah, kind of wondering. Obviously, they're hearing something we're not. Sometimes I feel funny and caught up inside. 
it's a different rhythmic approach which sort of acknowledges what's going on but also ignores it at the same time. The melody is the most important part of the shags, I think. If you notice, there's no harmony, always unison singing and lead guitar playing exactly what the singing is playing. So you have three things, two voices and one guitar playing the melody at all times. And is that unusual? Yeah. Terry re-released Philosophy of the World. Straight away, Kurt Cobain called it one of his favourite ever albums. Bonnie Raitt said they sounded like castaways on their own musical desert island. The jazz composer Carla Bley said they brought her mind to a complete halt. Rolling Stone called it the comeback of the year. The shags were a hit. Do you think it was worth it, or do you think that kind of pain and spoilt childhood... You know, even if it was it's worth it for you and me because we get to listen to it now. Only they would know whether it was worth it or not. Mm. If you love people, you love real music. So, mm. you know, they have all these categories of world music and all that. It's just people. People make sound, and if they're good people, then you should like it. I don't know why it has to live up to somebody else's idea to be considered to be beautiful. Today, people, you know, say the shags. I mean, I don't go around saying, hey, do you know the shags? But it's, it just comes up. I love the shags. I love the shags music. And yeah, well, I did that, <laughs> you know. What did they say? Same as you're asking me. What was it like? You know, what did you think? Um, I didn't know what to think. It was kind of like a shock. It was like, is this really happening? And there's been a lot of people who have tried to reproduce anything even coming close to what the shags did and it seems like nobody can do it because nobody can do it it's probably like trying to learn 17 different languages in you know a short amount of time and throw them all together and you had no inkling at the time that actually you were doing something that was strangely beautiful and haunting. No, no inkling idea. at all. <laughs> no. When did you first listen to it and think, gosh, this is quite good? I still don't listen to it. My son listens to it. Want the truth, I still don't think it's good. <laughs> this is it. This is right where the house was. This is where the house was, the brown patch, like the grass never grew after. When my mom sold the house and the property, the people that bought it was building a house out back. So they burned this house, our house down. Can you show me where the uh, rehearsal room was? Uh, this half over here was like the living room. The rehearsals were in the basement, which was right under the living room. It's amazing that you can actually see the, the outline of a house, but the house is just invisible. It is. It's like the ghost of a house. There you go. Yeah. The ghost of the house. Yeah, they say it was haunted. They said, in fact, when they were burning it down, that they saw a man's face in the window. Well, like a ghost? Yeah. Yeah. They said there was, you know, something there. Did they think it was the ghost of your father? They do. 
I suppose that's the last thing you want. Yeah. <laughs>